Lee, we're, we're bringing on uh, a fellow by the name of... Um, John O'Hare. Yes, who has an exceptional radio voice. He has. Uh, but he's also a film, um, has a film voice. He's appeared in films. He's an actor. He's a director of, of theatre. Teacher. And a teacher. How do you know John? Uh, he's, uh, I met John through the, through the music scene, but also his son... Um, used to hang out with Len and my son and um, they grew up together and that's how I recontacted or connected with John and I guess we've known each other a lot of years. Um, yeah, John's a great bloke, great, a, great, a great actor. He's a journeyman. Is that he's what you're calling him? Yeah, he and, he, and, he, uh, and he's born in Manchester. He is. He was born in Manchester. So I'm sure he'll have some, some really good stories. Yes, so let's get him in and have a listen to what he's got to say. I'm Why not? I'm sure let's John likes a chat. Let's do that. Okay. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Hello, John. We have John O'Hare in the studio. Hello, but you, John. But John you? already, but uh, we already know that because we've done the preamble, George. Well, we're going to cut out a lot, John. <laughs> we are going to cut out a lot. Okay. No, no, we're keeping that in. The, Did I say so, I'm, I'm happy to be because back? Because I'm introducing a new segment, how many dumb things George says in one interview. <laughs> <laughs> Folks are dumb where I come from. They ain't had any learning. <laughs> That'll be more than 50 minutes long. I can guarantee it. We at the start of the uh, when we first started, John, we uh, we had a swear jar, but I realised that we we actually don't swear as much as we thought we did. So mm. we, we no, but today not, you're going to tell us a cracker of a story. Fucking shut up! <laughs> <laughs> Oops, where's the swear jar? Tink. <laughs> John, how are you, mate? I'm good, George. Welcome to our our studio. We're really, uh, we're really. uh, Well, I'm happy to have you here because uh, you know the preamble was really interesting talking to you before we started recording. And now we're going to have to get you to repeat everything. <laughs> Let's see if I can remember is, the questions. Yeah. Is that because we were talking about doing it Greek style, George? Your favourite <laughs> well, thing. He spoke. <laughs> Don't bring up those goats again, okay? <laughs> Well, you've been missing the, I, the last two episodes I did without George mm. because he was off... With the dancing goats. With the dancing goats or whatever. Wherever you go missing to, who knows? Johnny mm. Boy. Now, you looking at your profile, you were born in Manchester. That's right. A little bit older than me, not much, just a touch. Looking very Robin Williamesque today. Um, and so uh, uh, I know I have to describe you for the folks that can't actually see you, and you actually look nothing like you do in your profile photos. So you've done you've done a very good job being incognito, chameleon. You see, well, is that is. intentional? Well, that's what an actor is, isn't it? You know, you, you've got to be a chameleon, and so your look does change. 
We, um, you know, we, we spoke, spoke earlier about you being able to mimic a Manchester accent. Yeah. And, um, and you're going over there in a couple of weeks, right? In two weeks' time, yeah. Well, well tell us a little bit about what it was like to uh, grow up in Manchester. Well, I grew up in Manchester, you know, in the, in the 60s. So it was basically through the 60s. I was born in, you know, early 60s and then moved right through the 60s and moved to Australia at the end. Um, it was a fantastic place to be, Manchester, during the 60s. You know, you had Manchester United. They, you know, they won the league. They won the European Cup. They won the FA Cup. Um, England won the World Cup in 66. You know, uh, the swinging 60s were in full swing. You know, you had the Beatles, you know. It's been a hard You know, you had the, the, the Hollies. You had all the, you know, the great music was happening. Mm. And I was growing up in that decade, listening to it and just soaking it all up. And, you know, what a great place Manchester was. You know, there was a lot of television production happening there. A lot of it shifted from London and went north. It was cool in the 60s, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, to have a northern English accent and, you know, and a northwestern accent because of the Beatles. You know, before that, if you, you know, you wanted to put someone down, you'd you put on a Northern English accent, you know, if you wanted to make someone sound a bit stupid if you were telling a joke, you know, you put on a, a Northern accent and straight away that would be a signifier to someone who's listening to the gag that, oh, this guy's stupid. But all of a sudden, thanks to John, Paul, Ringo and George, mm. having this accent, you know, the one I'm slightly putting on now, was dead cool. And then everyone in London and, this, you, know, that, you know, the BBC sort of received pronunciation accent was uncool. You know, and, and, and we used to take the piss out of that accent. So it was, it was kind of a revolution in that way. It was a social revolution, you know, the working class. And you had Harold Wilson as well. And he had a northern, northern accent. So the prime minister had a northern accent. And then Monty Python brought it back with the three, three northerners. Well, it, well yeah. yeah they, the Yorkshiremen. Uh, the Yorkshiremen, the three Yorkshiremen, that's right. But, you know, I often think we were happier then, although we were poor. Because we were poor. Right. My old dad said to me, he said, money won't bring you happiness, son. He was right. right. I was happier then. I had nothing. Mm. We used to live in a tiny, tumble-down old house with great holes in roof. House? You're looking to have a house? We used to live in one room, 26 of us. All there. No furniture. Half the floor was missing, and we were all huddled in one corner for fear of falling. <laughs> room? You were lucky to have a room. We used to have to live in corridor. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, but... Uh... Well, Michael Parkinson, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, oh, you started to see people that you knew in the streets on telly, you know, and in films, and... You know, and Georgie Best, you know, with the Northern Irish lad, you know, I mean, it was people from the streets all of a sudden being, you know, the people that were leading culture. And that was exciting. I, I do uh, recall listening to a podcast about um, the um, pro film producers of the day uh, in England that shifted the focus from, you know, what would, what would have been the aristocratic end of society to the working class northerner um, I can't remember the name of the the producer but he was quite famous in the 60s and he really brought an earthiness to um, the quality of films coming out of England at the time um, and it was all based around the working class man and their life out of northern England out of Liverpool out of Manchester out of 
cities like like those. Um, you you probably experienced that firsthand on TV or at the movies, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, Kess, you know, it was about a, a little boy like me, same age, you know, and it was he was a working class kid. Um, Georgie Girl was another another mm. great film, you know, about you know kids in a working class school and. Um, and then in, in the theatre, even in London, you know, you had Look Back in Anger, so you had a John Osborne writing... Um, That's it. ...basically John kitchen Osborne. sink dramas about, you know, people from Birmingham, mm. you know. Uh, so all of a sudden, The Working Class Man was, you know, the comedy and tragedy. You know, you could have a tragic hero who was a, a working-class hero, as John Lennon sang, you know. Um, so it was a great time and a great time of, of change, and then the 70s hit really hard. And know? that's when you decided to hightail. That's when mum and dad decided to get out, yeah. And it hit hard because? Well, the oil crisis hit. Also, the economy just went haywire. You know, really? The, Brit- the British economy just plummeted, yeah. Yeah. Wow, it, so, was that, it was that savage and that quick. Yeah. yeah. It was brutal. Yeah, all of a sudden, you know, there, there was no petrol. You know, there, there would be queues a mile long to try and get petrol and you know it's almost like England was coming to a standstill. I remember having petrol strikes here in Australia but that was the union led wasn't it in the 70s? And as they did in the in the late 70s I mean the 70s just in Britain I mean that's where you know the Sex Pistols and all that movement came you, mm. know, and, you know and I went back to get involved in all that too. Oh did you? Yeah I did. We'll get there. We'll get there. Can we go back further? Yeah, yeah. I want to talk, talk which you don't know, George, but because I know John so well, about his father. Because John's father probably... Was it your father or your uncle that was your biggest influence that set you on this path? It was both of them in, in, in different ways. But both my, my father and my uncle Pat... My, my father's name is John too, so I'm John Jr., so John O'Hare and, and Pat O'Hare were, were both sort of local legends. They were entertainers, they were singers. And, and Pat O'Hare, my dad's brother, uh, had his own television show. He used to sing on Granada and he had a, a regular Sunday spot around tea time or dinner time, tea time in England we call it, but of dinner time in Australia, called Pat O'Hare Sings. And he'd, and he'd, he'd come on, you know, a bit like Tom Jones, you know, the, the, you'd have the... The the, uh, the camera would be on the mic and the hand would grab the mic and then pick it up and and there Pat would be sitting on a on a tall stool and he'd do a little bit of patter to the audience and he'd often sing um, a religious song you know a Sunday song which would be appropriate you know for that particular time of day you know the old rugged cross or a song like that but he was a an entertainer in that club scene that circuit that was massive in England at that time, you know, through the 60s and 70s and, and started to die down in the 80s, you know, the working men's clubs, the con, the con clubs, the conservative clubs, and then, you know, Blackpool and, and Brighton and Morecambe and, you know, with Des O'Connor and Shirley Bassey and you oh, know, wow. all that crowd, they, they, cut all their, they cut their teeth and learnt their craft doing tours around the clubs. And Pat, my uncle Pat, Pat O'Hare and Shirley Bassey would, used to do a double act. They... they they used to drive around, you know, from Manchester to Newcastle, from Newcastle to Blackpool, from Blackpool to Leeds to Liverpool, you know, just over a week just doing the circuit and working. So I grew up in that milieu, you know, the, the people that I, 
you know, would see in the in the in the lounge in the front room or around the dinner table would be, you know, Tommy Cooper and Jimmy Tarbuck and I met Peter Cook and Dudley Moore who knew Pat, you know, so and Shirley Bassey. So I knew these people didn't know that they were really, really famous. They were just people who were in the house, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I mean you just you just viewed them as another set of adults, but you didn't really understand how famous they were. Yeah. Fame was a re- really interesting thing back then. It, it, you know, they were they were normal people. You know, I mean, I I I met and you know George Best and you know the the Manchester United players were part of our life. Um, my uncle Pat's best friend was was Sandy Busby, who was Samat Busby's son. So we knew Samat. You know, we lived two doors down from Wilf McGuinness, who became the manager of Manchester United. He was the coach of Manchester United for many years. You know, they were neighbours, they were family friends, they were of the people. You know, mm. they weren't these sort of unattainable, you know, superstars that they are now. You know, that sense of alienation that we all have to, you know, sports heroes now. They're, they're not ours anymore, they're not of the people. So, yeah, I grew up with these people in the house, you know, and, and modest houses. You know, we're not talking about any glam here, you know. It, it sounds like things were, were quite real uh, at the time. Like, uh, I imagine... Given what you said, they didn't have groupies following them everywhere and they didn't have um, autograph chases or anything like that. They did, but it, do you remember what it was like? It was, there's a bit more innocence about it. You know, little kids, I mean, the people that would chase autographs were, you know, the, 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 the oldest they would be would be 10, you know, and they'd be, they'd be chasing them and, you know, getting autographs. But, you know, when you're a teenager, you wouldn't even have thought of that, you know. You weren't really that interested in fame in in that in the way it seems to be today. You know, everybody since Andy Warhol wants their fifteen minutes. You know, um, something shifted in the culture, and it's probably when footballers, um, comedians, you know, entertainers became commodities, uh, and they weren't, you know, people just speaking from their local culture with the the voice of their local culture you know and they had so they became brands <clears throat> when when performers and musicians became brands that's when it all shifted i guess um because if you go because i was just wondering you know you talk is is that why people are more nostalgic about those days now or is that an age thing or do you think it's because of that innocence of of the idea of fame well you know, I mean, because we're middle-aged, you know, young people listening to this will say, well, you know, you, of course it was better back then. And it, and it seems like every generation says that, doesn't it? Um, but, you know, I mean, it, it could get political if we talk about it in those terms, because the one thing that it seems to be the zeitgeist that everybody, if they're really honest about it and, and thinks about it, even for a, a minute, you this is this... Uh, pervasive sense of alienation that we all have Mm. Um, and we're not quite sure why or what it is you know even in the political sense we feel alienated from the democratic process you know we feel like our vote is probably not really worth anything you know so what's that about Um, as far as you know making money and you know what are we making money for and you know what are all you know what are it's as my grand said you know it seems to be that everybody knows the price of things but doesn't know, and knows the value of nothing so 
you know, what is the value of a, of a thing now? Um, and who decides what the value of a thing is? And that, and that is intellectual property, but it's also our entertainers, our musicians. Um, at one time, it was a local culture. You know, mm. a movement would come a tribe, from, yeah. a, from a tribe, <coughs> from, a, from a, a place, a time and a place. Mm. And it, you, you could identify it, you know, like the Beatles. You know, they, they came from Liverpool um, and they were speaking, they, the, the voice of the working class kid from that area. And then when that voice got out, it, it became, it was a universal voice that needed to be expressed. And kids in Australia picked up on it. Kids in New York picked up on it. You know, in different parts of the world, that voice wanted to be heard. But it was a real voice coming from the people, you know, coming from a culture. It wasn't manufactured, you know, like K-pop. You know, K-pop seems to be the extreme version of that. It's, it, it's, it's the antithesis of the Beatles, yeah, well, now people are now people are trying to create that, so it's not real, is it? In that sense, is this getting too deep? <laughs> it could be. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, you know. I'm, well, that's what we do on this show. We go deep. Mm. Yeah, it's I not, mean, I know it's not personal, isn't it? So we're getting political, I guess. Um, but you know, I'm a thinker, so yeah. No, it's a good thing, but you, you obviously were, I mean, you, you said earlier that you grew up in a predominantly black neighbourhood. Yeah. Okay. And you were surrounded by a culture that was a little bit, well, I guess in, in the context of how we behave today, it was a little bit odd, um, but you were the odd man out by the sound of things. Like, uh, explain a little bit about the, the culture, the, you know, what it was like to go out in... in uh, in Manchester, and then and then why you were a little bit different? Like why were you like the thinker hiding in the corner? <laughs> like you know, I don't know. I, you know, I think you know, you're born with a character, aren't you? And uh, and a sensibility. Um, you know, maybe it's you know I put it down to the Celtic background. You know, it turns out that I'm. A Basque, you know, that my great 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 grandfather is. No, I from, can see a little bit of that in you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they went to Ireland. Um, you know, and the Irish, of course, um, live in, in 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 the realm, you know, just above the unconscious. So you know, telling stories and singing and just slightly, you know, ethereal and ephemeral in their in their natures. And 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 that was that was also a big part of my growing up culture was being Irish, you know, and the Irish identity, because my father's side, Pat O'Hare and John O'Hare, you know, from South Armagh, they, you know, and the bards of Armagh, they were, they were poets and, and storytellers and singers. And, and my grandfather was a Shauna Key, you know, and, and a Shauna Key is a local storyteller. You know, that's what he would do. You know, he'd, ha- he'd, he'd, be, he'd do his day job, and in the night, in the Shabin, he would sit down by the fire and start to do a ran, start to conjure up a story and, and tell a story. And he had hundreds and hundreds of stories that were in his memory, you know. Um, and people would gather around and listen to, you know, Stephen O'Hare tell his stories. And that was a tradition of Armagh. So we grew up with that as part of the background of who you are. And you don't realise as a kid you're taking, it, taking that on. Mm. You know, my granddad would speak Gaelic to me and I would, you know, answer back in English. But... You know, what, what's that about? 
growing up in Swinburne Street. Now, in, in Manchester at the time, it was, it was defined by streets. So I lived in a black street, but, you know, you go around the corner and it'd be a white street, you know, and, and then it might be a, a Polish street or an Italian street or a Greek, you know. It was just street gangs. It was, you know, that's where it came from. And, you know, and it was demarcated. And if you went into, a, you know, into Moston Lane and you were from Swinburne Street, the Swinburne Street gang had arrived, you know, you, there was a confrontation. You know, who do you support, City or United? You know, that was, that was the way to sort of start the fight. You know, or, you know, you've just crossed the line. Now, I grew up with West Indian kids because, of course, you know, during the 50s and, you know, To Sir With Love, you know, that, that great movie with Sidney Poitier, mm. you know, that social experiment was, was taking place with Indian and Pakistani uh, and West Indians coming in from the British Empire uh, and, and the social experiment was taking place in the north of England, you know, uh, by the powers that be. Uh, and it was a wonderful thing to grow up um, without racism because it, it didn't it didn't enter your head in that respect. You know, it, you, if you were they were part of a street gang, it, you could be Indian, Pakistani, Greek, Italian, West Indian, you know, Catholic, Irish, and that was your gang. You know, and you were all together, and it was about the street. You know, and it was about the location and your take on anyone else. You know. So, you know, that, that when we were sort of skinheads, if you like, you know, and I don't mean fascists, we weren't because, of course we weren't, because the, the black boys were rude boys, you know, and with the, the pork, pork pie titfers and, you know, we all dressed the same and we belonged to that street gang, you know, that, that was our gang in our street, you know, and we were all nations, you know. So it must have been a bit of a culture shock when you moved here. Because you moved here in the, what, in 70? That's right. It was the end of 69. We arrived in Fremantle on the 15th of December, which is my dad's birthday. Um, as we sailed past Rottenness Island and, you know, and everybody ran to one side of the ship, you know, because of, you know, land ahoy. And we looked, you know, to this, this halcyon sort of place that we'd been, you know, this trip we were... And it... <laughs> God, what the hell is that? <laughs> All we could see was this sort of sort of wavy kind of thing in the air, which was heat. You know, we didn't, it was, it was heat rising off the land, like mirage mm. waves in the atmosphere. And we'd never seen anything like that before. And we were looking at what it was Fremantle, and it was just this flat, no buildings, corrugated iron, and Fremantle docks. And mum went... Oh my God! What have we done? <laughs> As a ten-year-old, I was yeah. like, "Oh, you know." In those days, when you know, the perception was when you left England on a boat, on a ship, on an Italian ship, Sitmar Line. We arrived on the Fair Sky. That was our boat, the Fair Sky. Um, was that you were never coming back? You might as well have been going to the moon. Mm. You, you were leaving everything behind. Your, your furniture was in crates in the hold. You'd left England. You'd left Europe. And this was going to be your life. And remember, you know, airfares air back then were as expensive as in the numbers as they are now. You know, it was $2,000 to fly mm. back to England back in the 70s. Yes. So, you know, that, that, the proportion of your wages it would go into that. You know, you really had left home for good. 
and we were, we and then we were driven. Um, another entertainer, Max K, Western Australian entertainer, Max K, is very well known in WA. By marriage, is my uncle. So you know, we arrived to another you know entertainer, and he, and he had the Civic Theatre restaurants in Perth, and he was very well known. Did the telethons and all that kind of stuff. And uh, through him, I met Michael Jackson and all people like that. But it, um, he picked us up at the at the docks and drove us to where we were to live. And it was Greylands Hostel, a migrant camp with Nissan huts, corrugated iron Nissan huts. And this was our home. And there was a gate with a boom. And we were driven through there into a, what felt like a prison camp. So it was a massive culture so- shock. And... You know, we, we came from, as you say, Brett, you know, you came from a very uh, urban street culture where you knew all your neighbours, everybody knew everybody, the, you know, your neighbours would look after the kids and kids would be playing in the streets, you know. We were never in the house, you know, the, and the streets were full of kids. Kids were everywhere playing, you know, you play football on the, on the roads, you know, uh, cricket against lampposts and, you know, it was just community. You know, a community like any European community, like a Greek community, and, and an well, Italian plus community. hundreds of years of culture and and tradition and community, and you moved of all places to Free Western Mantle. Australia. Fremantle. All places. I mean, in the seventies, you know, Sydney so, would have been one thing, but Fremantle. So, were there kids in the street? No. No. Yeah. What did you do with yourself? It was straight. It was very. It was Perth was very suburban back then. It was, it, you know, Alan Bond was you know on the rise. So he was buying land up all over. And you know what? Are now the northern suburbs of Perth was just bush, and Bondy was buying it all up and subdividing it. And so you know, it was sort of the first time um, in the in the in the seventies where you know uh, suburbs were being made. You know, in Perth, you know, outer suburbs. And you could buy a block of land for four thousand dollars, and then you, you bought your block, and then you built your house on it, which is what mum and dad did. You know, um, you know, so dad bought a block of land in Greenwood, you know, which is now a salubrious and area. You know, thirty odd years later, I'm forty odd years later, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then, it was just bush. You know, kangaroos were jumping around and all that. But your dad was an entertainer, and so was Uncle Pat. Yeah. Did your dad try to get back into that um, profession here, yeah, over he here in Australia? He did. Yeah. How did he go? He did great. Um, on the on the hostel, um, on the hostel, the migrant hostel, in the hut next door, <laughs> was uh, uh, Al Miles, Alan Miles, who was a Liverpool uh, entertainer. He was he was all part of the cavern. He played in the cavern. Knew John Lennon. Knew the Beatles. He uh, was in the Undertakers, which was a you know, one of the bands that nearly made it, you know. Mm. Uh, but if you look them up, they exist. And, and Al Miles is, you know, there somewhere. I don't want much. I just want a little bit. I don't want it all. I just want a little bit. Great. You know, rhythm guitarist, and 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 met my dad, and they got together, uh, and formed a band on the hostel. So they used to entertain all the other migrants on the hostel. And it was called um, 
they, well, they formed a band called Southern Comfort after the drink. Do you remember Southern Comfort? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I take it you don't drink that. It's vile. <laughs> I did have a sip of it once when I was about 12 and, you know, and I spat it out. I don't think, what's that about? Because of the name, Southern Comfort, it's, it has this romantic kind of my dad on stage kind of feel to it, you know. <laughs> and Alan and dad are still best mates and Al still gets up on YouTube and does it. And my dad still... Um, entertains the pensioners, the old people, as he calls them. <laughs> and That's 85, and he calls, he's entertaining the old people, <laughs> you, know, on, uh, you know, the pensioners in the different... Sounds sort of, like my dad. Yeah. He doesn't, have, doesn't, doesn't play ukulele, does he? He, he can play the ukulele, oh, okay. but he, he doesn't play the ukulele on stage. No, he's a crooner, you know, he, he does jazz standards, you know, right. he's, he's that okay. type of entertainer, you know. The, and where's Uncle Pat today? Pat is still singing. Can you believe it? He's he's he, he, he was there was a YouTube of him just the other day, but he was on another. Pat was on another level. You know, I mean, he mm. you know he, the BBC orchestra. He did a film where he played Al Bowley, and uh, he had his own TV show for Granada. Um, he won. You know, he played the Palladium. You know, for, for the Queen. You know, did the you know all that kind of stuff. Was was he your hero as a kid? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. He used to take me on gigs with him, you know, and, you know, that's my Uncle Pat, you know. Um, and that was my kind of brush with fame as a kid. I, I, I sort of came out of the mist and realised that something kind of special was going on. When I, um, I was getting on a, on a bus, a coach or a charabank, we used to call it, to go to London, uh, and Uncle Pat was seeing me off. So Pat had dropped me off at the, at the station and I was sitting on the, on the coach and Pat, was at the door and going, you know, you're all right, John, and you know, um, and he, here's a fiver, you know, treat yourself at the motorway cafe on the way down, um, and people are going, that's Pat O'Hare, hey Pat, you know, and all that, and he's going, all right, you know, and sort of <laughs> waving, and you know, that you, you, and then people sort of were nice to you, you know, because you were related to Pat O'Hare, and when we went back to Ireland, it was the same thing, you know, you you go to a local community, and and there Pat O'Hare had arrived. So they'd want Pat to sing at the, you know, Uncle Alf's 85th birthday. And Pat was, you know, again, that was the nature of entertainers in those days. You know, you'd be on TV, you know, with your Sunday program, but you'd, you'd, you'd turn up at your local neighbor's 85th birthday and do a few numbers for them. You know what I mean? They were, you were still part of the community that you came from and you didn't forget that. You know, and, and the idea of forgetting it wasn't even an idea. It wasn't even a concept. It was just part of who you were. You you didn't pretend that you love your community. You were your community. Mm. And, you, and you maintain that that connection which, always. Which we've lost to a degree now because of, of globalisation, I guess. Well, now we have the Kardashians. Well. Yeah. You know. If people who are famous who don't do anything. Mm. Yes, there's a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I've, I, I'm, I'm impressed that he was so accommodating and never said no. Always willing to, you know, be there for the community and, and you know, because that was the nature of being an entertainer as well. You were giving for the, for the to make people happy and and giving some some enjoyment. Um, yeah, I remember, yeah, him, you know, he was singing at weddings. You know, he'd. I remember one time he was asked to sing at. A neighbor's wedding, and you know, someone who lived next door but one, you know. Um, and it, and she was, they were in their early 20s, and they, they said, Oh, would you know, would Pat sing at the wedding? He said, Of course, I will, you know. And they put 
20 quid in an envelope. He said, no, it's all right. You know, I don't, don't oh, give you me mean that. He, he said, it's my present. You know, I'll, I'll do it for you. Sorry. He didn't send them an invoice. Not at all. No. <laughs> he went up to St. Dunstan's, you know, the, the, the local church, you know, the local Catholic church up the road, and, and he'd sing, you know. And the joy was to sing at the wedding, you know, for them and be part of that. And then, you know, and then he'd, he'd, he'd leave at a certain time and then go to his professional gig because he would be gigging every night. I mean, they, they worked really hard. Mm. You know, and that's why they were good. You know, I mean, that's why the Beatles were good. I mean, that's why these guys were good. I mean, Pat was brilliant because he worked, you know, seven nights a week, you know, and he'd be driving all over England, you know. What, is, what did his wife think of that? Well, they were theatre widows, you know. I mean, she, she, she used to go with him sometimes, Christine. Um, but, you know, they'd whinge about it and moan mm. about it. Of course they would, because he was away all the time. He came to Australia. He was on the Ugly Dave Grey show. Now, no one will remember no, Ugly Dave. I do. Dave. I do. Of course we of, of remember course we Ugly do. Dave Grey with, and he was with a, his cigar. And he was a pommy too. He, well, he was a friend of Pat's. He was, was he really? He's from Manchester. Of course he was. Ah. And so he did the clubs with Pat. Um, came over to, you know, emigrated to Australia and, you know, made his name here and had he, the Ugly Day Grey show, mm. TV show, and he was also on blank, Blankety Blank. Blankety Blanks with Graham Kennedy. Graham Kennedy and, you know, Nolene Brown, all the all And the he was crew. the funniest bloke there, really. Hilarious, because he was so quick with the, you know, the one-line gags. And, uh, well, he had his own show and he got, he brought Pat O'Hare over from England and that's when he was on the plane with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, you know, uh, on the new Boeing, you know, Jumbo Jet, as it was called, you know, and they were up in the, they used to have a bar. Yeah, in the, the Jumbo deck. Jet, on the top deck. So Pat being, you know, obviously an entertainer was with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore up there. Peter Cook would have had a few. Dudley would have had a few. Oh, yeah, they were... <laughs> Well, in those days, Did everyone Pat had a few. All the time. <laughs> everyone I mean, had a few back in those days. Pat used to drink for England back then, <laughs> <laughs> along with Georgie Best. And George, well, George Best was a family friend. Everybody did, you yeah. know. Uh, it killed Georgie, didn't it? Yeah. So he, Pat came to, and he did the Leagues Clubs as well. So that, you know. Which would have been booming back then. He might have gigged with my dad. No, Pat said uh, the crowds at the leagues clubs were the, some of the biggest crowds he'd ever played to, you know. Yeah, they used except to. Except for the Palladium, you know. People used to rock up. They don't now. But the RSLs and the leagues clubs were always full of people. Same as live music. It's, yeah. it's the same thing. It's, it's unfortunate, but that's a fact of the change, you know, the changing times. Yeah. So, so okay, we're reminiscing, but let's get back to you. <laughs> so you... You so you end up in Fremantle. Yes. So you, obviously you go to high school. Yeah. Let's talk about your career now. Like, so you, when you left school, what did you do? Well, at school, I hated school. school Why? School was a nightmare. Uh, well, well, actually, was there a drama class at school? I, I didn't. I hated drama at school. Really? Yeah. Well, you know, because it was where the Jessies went. You know the. The Nancy boys, you know, um, you know, it, I was a very confused kid. You know, I, I I thought I was a tough guy, but you know, I, I, I really I just wanted to put on tights and you know, dress, <laughs> dress up in women's clothing. <laughs> See, that worked well for you. <laughs> Excuse me, and a cough. Uh, I went to Balcata High. Um, Balcata High was a state school, um, and it was an immigrant school. So it was, oh, was it? Yeah. 
It was uh, just on the on the uh, fringes of the nor- the most northern suburbs, and as I said, Greenwood was was the the beginning of the northern suburbs back then. So it was when I say migrant, lots of Greeks, Italians, Yugoslavs. You know, this this is the Perth makeup. Um, and, and palms, you know, the pommy. And remember, we were coming in boatloads, you know. We were sort of the, the, the next wave of, of, you know, 10 pound palms, you know. We were a family, so we were 15 pounds, so we were cut above the 10 pounds. <laughs> um, so we, um, and Balcada was war. Balcada, and back in the 70s in Perth, you know, one set of migrants would pick on the other set of migrants, and it was aggro. And Perth skinheads, they got mm. a reputation, you know, they, they got a national reputation. And Brett knows about this because the all-nighters came over to mm. to Perth and, you know, we were there and we were there in in the thousands. You know, mm. we were we were a movement. We started our own nightclubs and and, and, and music scene and, and, and fashion. And but, you know, we were also trouble. You know, we were troubled teenage, angry immigrant kids who didn't know why the hell we were brought to this place. You know, um, I've digressed. What was your question, Brett? <laughs> um, yeah. So, so when you left school, yeah, did did you go? Did you suddenly go? Oh, I want to be an actor. Drama? Or? No, it wasn't. It wasn't on my mind at all. I I was artistically gifted as a drawer, painter, drawer, and that was seemed to be my only gift, apart from being a fantastic footballer, because I played for Western Australia and oh, did you? Of, you know the young Australian team and. Did a lot of soccer touring, you know, soccer as you call it, we call it football. You know, I, I thought it was Georgie Best, you know. Um, and my biggest regret about leaving England as a, as a kid was I was one of the best footballers in our street and our school in Manchester. So I was. That would have made you a, a candidate for the Manchester United uh, team. Yes, yeah, scouts were interested. You know, my, my dad's brother, Steve, wow. other brother Steve, played for Manchester City. So we're also wow. surrounded by that culture as well. Um, so yeah, playing football here, you know, I, I was so way of, so good compared to you know the average kid. Um, you know, the the best other kids were you know the Italian and Greek kids. You know, they were good, great footballers too. So when we were picked for the state team, you know, you had the elite Pommy kids and the elite Italian and Greek and Yugoslav kids. You know, that was you know puffed ball as they used to call it. <laughs> that, that was us, you know, and that's where we 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 became friends. That's where we united. That's where the Greek, Italian, Yugoslav, and the Pommy kids became buddies. It was on the football park. Off the football park, it was come on, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, so no theatre wasn't part of my makeup or you know entertaining and being on stage. Yes, you know I wanted to be an entertainer, and I thought I wanted to be a stand-up comic. Um, and that, that, that really interested me as, a, as an idea, but I didn't know how to do that. But I, because I was gifted at art, I went to art school, fine art school, and was doing painting and drawing. Um, and a friend of mine um, was in a, a theatre group called Kamira Acting School in Perth, which was the only cultural outlet in Perth, because Perth was a dearth of culture. There was nothing happening, you know. It was the beach and the beach. You know? hmm. um, so he said, I'm in this play. Uh, could you draw some pictures for it? So I said, oh, yeah, okay. Well, what's that? What, what do you mean, draw pictures for a play? What, what do you mean by that? And he said, oh, well, you know, the costumes and, and the set. And I didn't even know what he meant by a set, you know. So I went in and watched them rehearsing. And, and I thought, oh, the, he means the place, 
that the it's taking place in. That's the set. So you've got to make the world of the play. So and I was thinking pantomime because we grew up with pantomime in, in England as a tradition. So I drew the set and 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 was watching these actors and I was thinking, this is really these people are really interesting people. You know. And I've met my my tribe. I, I, I started to get this feeling that these people were the were my kind of people. And they were drawing me away from, you know, the aggro skinhead lads and the, the football and and I was at that I was on the brink of do I leave Australia and go to England and try and make it as an apprentice footballer or what do I do you know and it was at that sort of you know moving towards the 80s time where it was really 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 hard for an Aussie footballer to make it you know it didn't matter how good you were um, you know Craig Johnson was one of the you know he ended up at Liverpool uh, was one of the few that broke through of my generation. Um, so I started to meet theatre people, yeah. But it was after school. You know, it, was, it was way after school. Right. And I was working. I, I worked, my first job was at the West Australian newspapers. Right. Drawing. No, I, I, I was doing uh, fine arts at night school. That's when I, because I, I had to have a job. Hmm. Because I, you know, wanted to leave. Back then, all you wanted to do when you were sixteen was leave home. I mean, now kids don't want to leave home, but we wanted to leave home mm. as soon as we could and get a get a place to stay. And you could afford to, you know, mm. if you had a little job, you know, yep. you could get a house for a hundred bucks a week and get your mate to come in, and you know, you'd be living with your mate or your girlfriend, not a problem. Mm. So I got a job at the West Australian newspaper as a copy boy. Because I had, I had a sort of an idea that maybe I wanted to be a journalist at one point. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You mm. know? So it was that, what do I want? I'm artistic. I'm good with words. I'm good at writing. Um, and the way to become a journalist back then was to be a copy boy. So you worked in the newspapers and worked out how the newspapers worked from every possible department, mm. you know, from the copy room you know, up in the, you know, with the editors. So I'd sit with the editors and the, you know, on the, on the end of the, the telex machine. In fact, I was the first person in Western Australia to know that Whitlam was sacked. Because it came, right? came on the telex. And I was the guy who had to rip the page off the telex machine. And it was Whitlam sacked. And I had to run the copy, the copy boy, to the, the subby, the sub-editor. And, they, and the place just went in uproar. Whitlam sack, you know, and the whole place went nuts at the West Australian in the editor's room, you know. And I was like, I, I, I was the first to know that, you know. And then it was front page headline in the first daily news, you know, the early morning copy, you know, just after about 11 o'clock copy that would go out, Whitlam sacked. Wow. Did, you, did a thought cross your mind? Did anything go through your mind at the time when you read that? It was horror. It was shock. You know, as the prime minister, it was. It it just felt wrong. How old were you at the time? I would have been sixteen or fifteen or sixteen. I was. Yeah. Not old enough to vote. No, but you knew. No, but politically aware. Politically aware. Yeah, because yeah. you know, you know, I was reading Das Kapital. Mm, you know, as a skinhead, as you do, <laughs> as you yeah. do in tights. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was that was the one thing about you know the skinheads. They'd be confused. Um, the, well, no, they were they were intellectuals, you know, and they were 
They were Marxists, most of the people I knew. See, I never saw that when they used to corner me on the streets of Surrey Hills and beat the <laughs> crap out of me. I never saw that. I never saw that side of them. <laughs> they were just practising for the revolution. They were, <laughs> That's they were right. indeed. They were indeed. <laughs> Nobody knew what the hell was going on. Well, we used to chase, we used to chase each other all the time. So, you know, a bunch of skinheads would chase a bunch of Italian or Greek kids, you know. Yeah. And I remember catching up to this Greek lad once and, and we ran down and he ran down this alleyway and there was like a, a cyclone fence, you know, the cyclone fences, the mesh fences and, and he couldn't go anywhere. And so he turned around and I'm there and we looked at each other and we went, why are we doing this? And, and it was just him and I, you know, and, and the, everyone was shouting and carrying on. And he said, I don't know. And we just <laughs> laughed, you know, and I said, climb over the fence, you know. So I, I was helping him up to climb over the fence, and he climbed over the fence, and he went, see you, mate? And I went, see you. And, I went, and then I came out of the alleyway and went, yeah, got him, you know. Stop one on him, you know, and all that. And he went, yeah, good on you, John. You didn't, you know, you know, it was yeah. it was not really. Yeah. It, it seemed like you were, and you were well, supposed to do it. But well, there were skinheads and there were skinheads, wasn't there? There were skinheads as... that, that did it because of the clothing and the music, and then there were skinheads that did it because they were... They were Marxists, and, and I guess you know? I guess they were the ones that you know that they really created that uh, that rough edge to the night to the nightlife, you know, the night scene in the clubs, right? They were the ones that would and um, the punks, you know, I guess, the yeah, punks, yeah. and they would they would um, you know uh, whip the 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 crowd up into a frenzy and mm. then start getting into the biff, yeah, yeah. yeah it used to happen a lot. Did it happen a lot? When Hernando's you were going Hideaway. Out? Hernando's Hideaway in yep. Perth was that was the bar, you know, tiny little. Pokey room, you know. But, it was you know, just like being back in Manchester, right? Yeah, well, the Hacienda, you know, where, you know, when I went back to England in the late 70s, that's where we used to go, you know. And it was there was a f- fair amount of... There's always aggro, you know. Uh, the English are, you know, they're pretty violent, you know, the the young English culture. There's, a, there's, a, there's an anger in it, you know, and rightly so, you know. Um, so yeah, there's always that that feeling of tension and aggro, as there is in Harlem and you know New York, wherever, wherever there's a, a people oppressed, you know, um, you're going to get anger. But that also is a can be creative. It can be constructive, mm. you know, very creative anger. You know, when you've got something to say, you know, like Joy Division, you know, like the Sex Pistols. I mean, look at the fantastic creativity came out of anger. You know, mm. like it was a roar. I mean, the Sex Pistols was a roar against the establishment. You know, and look and look at the the fashion that was created out of that, and, and then it was commodified mm. and commercialized, and and it lost all its its spunk. You know, mm. it became emasculated, mm. it became flaccid. Missing out on any of this growing up in in Perth, were you? Well, no, because <coughs> what what would happen the, traditionally in Perth is, as soon as you were old enough as a teenager, and you and you'd saved enough money, you'd you'd go back to Tintagel. You know, you'd go back to the land of mythology, back to England. All, all of us did. And you'd go back with the intention of living, you know, living there and rejecting the, the decision your parents had made for you. Obviously, you're pushing back. And, of course, England was the place to go because it was, you know, the centre of your culture, you know, the music scene and fashion and, mm. and, and, and hearing voices that were familiar, you know, dialects that you knew and humour that you understood and... You know, so you wanted to go back there and be part of that culture and immerse yourself in that. And what happened when you went back for the first time? How old were you? 
The first time I was uh, just about to turn 19. And what did you discover? All of that. You know, it was... Uh, did you feel at home or did you feel a little bit displaced? Slightly alienated at first, but, you know, cousins and, and family would, would take me in. And then we started going to the clubs and, you know, and the music and the pistols and, you know, Joy Division and, uh, you know, all that was going on. Um, the Smiths, mm. you know, and all of a sudden you, you felt like you were part of something, you know, and then the Stone Roses started to happen and, you know, you were part of a, a new movement, you know, a new zeitgeist and, and you knew that this was happening, you know. Um, and, but, you know, it was grubby, dirty, you know, it seems romantic to, to think back on and it's glamorised as something that it wasn't. It was, it, you know, the, the Hacienda was a smelly uh, barn of a place, you know, the acoustics were shite, but, you know, the, but something was going on, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, that, was, that was the time of tribes. I keep on saying it, but, you know, which doesn't happen now. There's no tribes in the and music no, scene. And there's no rough and readiness anymore. It's, everything's polished. Everything's, yeah, well, because everybody's you know, everything. in this um, shift to move towards um, their, fa- their social media and being famous. You know, back in those days, you, you didn't, it didn't matter whether you were on stage or whether you were off stage. You know, I know from our point of view that we didn't feel any different to anybody in the audience. And when the gig was finished, we'd be out drinking with the audience. Whereas now it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't appear to work like that. It's all, you're, it's all geared for you to move towards stardom. If you're a singer or a musician, the thought is, how do I become famous? What can I do on social media that's going to make me stand out from everybody else? We never thought like that. We just thought, well, how are we going to get a beer, or a joint, or a, or a girl? Exactly. Yeah. Well, talk, talking about stardom, I mean, obviously you moved onto that track and, mm. uh, and had aspirations to be a star, I'm, I'm assuming, or did you just do what you did because it came naturally and you didn't really have an overall plan? No. I, like all of us, you know, we're philosophers and, and you know, I was looking seeking for you know answers to the meaning of life basically you know um you know why do we die you know what's that all about and you know coming from a you know religious background you know you know having a jewish and a, and a catholic heritage on you know on two sides of my family you know there's a lot of that tradition um and the storytelling aspect of things the only time i felt alive or when i knew that I could let go of the mask that I was wearing, that I was forced to wear, uh, was when I, w- I was acting. So I discovered acting, you know, I and mean, I know we've, we've, we've made a leap and I've not told the story how I got into it, but I, I'll quickly tell you that I basically I, I discovered acting. Um, uh, I went to uh, Theatre Arts and Design School after I designed that set that the friend asked me to design. While I was at Theatre Arts and Design School, uh, I was set an assignment where you had to um, talk about a play that you've gone to see. And I was discussing this play, but you were supposed to discuss the play from a designer's point of view. And my teacher said, John, you're discussing this play from a director's point of view as though you're an artistic director or an actor. Why don't you become an artistic director or an actor? And it was almost like this, somebody had sort of knighted me and had given me permission Hmm. to be who I should be, 
It was an incredible moment. Um, and the voice just gave me a, a compass. You know, it was my lodestar. You know, I, I went, that's the direction I'll go in. And I thought, well, how do you become an actor? You know, how, how does anybody become an actor? There, no one I knew was an actor. Um, you know, I was a suburban boy living in Perth, uh, in Greenwood. No one was an actor. And, and so I tried to find out. And, the, and this little place called Kamira Acting School in Perth, in Wellington Street, in a tin shed, there was a guy called Wilson McCaskill who'd gone to an acting school in London called East 15, which came out of um, uh, Maggie Barry and Theatre West and all that kind of stuff. And he was there teaching acting. And he, he was a, almost like a guru in a sense. So I went and, and started to learn about acting and not having a clue. You know, hadn't read a play yet. So, you know, it was a very strange way to get into it. Um, but once I did, I knew that that's, that's the journey that I need to take to find out what it's all about. You know, 42, you know, the meaning of life. So, you know, as an artist, I'm not myself unless I'm working. I found out about WAPA, which is the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. I found out, a, you know, I found out about that place while I was in London, investigating acting schools over there. You know, there's a very long story as to how I got into it. But there, again, it was, it, it, it's sort of, a, you meet these Obi-Wan Kenobis along the way, you know, these wise sages, uh, you know, and symbolically they, they represent something, but they, they point you in the right direction. I was just by accident, it's synchronicitous. I was in the Strand, and I'd been living in, in London in my early 20s now. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I was living in a squat. There was no heating, no hot water. It was November. I was trying to pursue acting and not knowing how to do it. I was a working class boy. I had no money, no, no privilege. There was no easy access to any of this. And I met this guy that I met through a friend called Lyle Jones, who was uh, the head of acting at London Arts. And he said, hello, John. And I said, hello. And he said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I, I, I just don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm wandering around the streets, you know, thinking about what to do. He said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to be an actor, but I don't know how to be one. He said, well, I'm going back to Western Australia to become the head of acting at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. What do you want to do? Do you want to be an Australian actor? Or do you want to be an English actor? And I said... Australian actor, I'm Australian. And he went, why don't you come back there? So the f that afternoon, I booked a flight back to, the U back to Australia. And a year later, this is a long story short, a year later, I auditioned for the Academy of Performing Arts. I didn't actually audition, that's another story. But um, I got into the Academy of Performing Arts on, on raw talent. And then that's where the career started. And it's quite a significant career reading your bio. I've got, I got to say, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I went to um, print off your bio this morning. It was too long. And, and I said to <laughs> my wife, I said, oh, bloody hell, this is like 10 pages long. I'll just print the first page and the last page, which I did, <laughs> because there was a couple of things on there. And, I, I mean, it's, you're, the list of things you've done is – Way too long to go into, and unless we've got another it's, hour. It's amazing, though. Uh, oh, it, I, yeah, it I is. was trying to... That's I'll, the short bio. Really? 
Wow. John, we're looking at, um, I mean, obviously, uh, you're not going to go on forever, right? I mean, we're at the, you know, the, the zenith of our lives. But uh, Speak but, for yourself. Okay. <laughs> I am speaking for myself. But what would you like to be most remembered for or, or what is it that you'd like to leave behind as a legacy? Nothing. Um, oh. Jung, Jung said, um, you know, live your life, particularly when you get older, as though you've got another 200 years to live. So every day you wake up and don't go, oh, I might get hit, hit by a bus. That's a negative way of looking at it. Look at it as though <laughs> when you wake up, I've got another 200 years. So, you, <laughs> so the project that you're going to do tomorrow or today, uh, you're planning for 200 years hence. You know, you're never, you live as though you're never going to die. You know, or the Nietzschean idea of eternal recurrence. You know, he met, he met a demon by a rock, by a lake. And the demon said to Nietzsche, if I said to you now that you could live your life, your life, the exact life that you've had with all its pitfalls, all its highs, all its lows for eternity, would you gnash your teeth and choose oblivion or would you live your life for all eternity? And I think that's the question we all have to ask ourselves because the answer lies in there. On that note, John, tell us about your – I'd actually like to get you back in before you go back to New York and do a second part to this, which, which we can talk more about your, the, the acting part of your career because the, mm. the, the, this interview has been fantastic and we've, we've got your early part, but we haven't got this, mid, this middle and you know, middle part. So we'll get you back in in a couple of weeks before you go back to New York. But we always finish with a song, and uh, you picked a song. Tell us about the song and why. I was 19, and I went back to Manchester, and I was lost. You know, that, that period where I, didn't, I wasn't an actor yet, and I didn't know what I was doing. And my Uncle Pat uh, was booked to play the, the Playboy Club in Manchester because the Playboy Clubs were still happening Sounds then. good to me. And, you know, it was 1979, it was glam then, you know, Hugh Hefner was at his height and, you know, and there was nothing wrong with all that, you know, mm. back then. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, I was virtually a virgin. Um, and so all these bunny girls and it was just amazing, you know, my Uncle Pat and Bonnie Tyler, you know, you have the artist's table in front of the stage. That's the way they used to do it back then. And mm. uh, there'd be a couple of drinks over. Bonnie Tyler and Pat were the two entertainers. So I was sitting there with Bonnie Tyler and she just had a hit, you know, something totally clips of the heart. Or something. Yeah. Right. Um, and they were the two acts for the night. And Uncle Pat started this song and he, he was looking at me knowing I was lost and he was singing the song to me to give me guidance. Right. And I, I'll never forget it. Hmm. And that's the day I, I decided, yeah, and the song's called? I'm going to follow my, follow my dream, you know, all mm. the way. There you go. John, it's been a pleasure it having been you a in pleasure, today. John. Thanks. And you just got me teary, funnily enough. <laughs> <I'm not laughs> it's <crying>. your fault. <laughs> <laughs> you. Dream away, child. Let your dreams 
run wild For a lifetime of words Might claim you Dream away, child Let your dreams run wild All the years and the tears shed Might claim you
Okay, we from Float Your Boat would like to thank you listeners for uh, listening in, but we also like to thank our crew, wouldn't we, Brett? We would, our crew. Our crew being me, being you, you? and... Donovan Jenks. Donnie Darko, also known as Darko. So usually they say edited by and produced by and our team of people. Well, they're not that refined and we don't have a team. Well, we do have a team but it's a very small team of multi-skilled people and that's just Darko, really. It's just Donovan Jenks. Tea lady. He's the tea lady. (laughs) He's the producer. He's the editor. He's the sound man. He's everything. He is. And, And he makes us look good, doesn't he? And he's just starting out in the sound business um, and uh, he's, he's exceptionally talented. Thank you, Darko. Thanks, thanks Donnie.